We're ready for another session of the Boulder Boulding. My name is Keith Ruckhouse, and I'm with... Alec Tsukatos. Alec Tsukatos. I think I said it right. Yes. All right. And we're going to start on another one of the strategies of a steady-state economics. This one dealing with trade and the call of steady-state economics is that trade really needs to be renegotiated or re-regulated, and the World Trade Organization and the IMF need to be reorganized. Perhaps I'll start this off, Alec, uh, just with a, a few things that I've dug up on uh, why uh, steady-state economics is calling for reevaluation of global trade. And you're going to deal more with this as we go along. But one of the problems with trade is that you can have one country, say, that is really about a steady state economics and about a sustainable growth economy. But you could have another country, or in our case, a state, who is not abiding by that. And then what happens? So the issue that steady state uh, economics raises when it comes to trade is not one of production per se. It's not a problem of, uh, especially in our society, in our world now where production can happen almost anywhere and we really have the problem of overproduction, but one of distribution that is really the problem. And Alec, it seems to me that we are at one of Marx's fundamental and correct criticisms of capitalism one that Henry Ford foresaw many years ago. Capitalism's inevitable drive for production will outpace consumption, thus the need for markets beyond, say, the the local. We can keep our whole facility, our factory, pushing out cars, but once we've saturated the local market, then what? Well, we go somewhere else. We look for places where there are no cars, or uh, we can we can start there as as part of. Uh, well, that's the original drive of trade, especially in capitalist societies. Is you you need to keep pushing out product and thus to to trade overseas. I I know that here in Colorado they they have the the problem with meat products that. There's not enough consumption of meat on a local level, so uh, we're sending our meat products all the way to China. So, Alec, uh, why don't you kind of dive in there and let's explore the problem of trade from a steady-state economics point of view. When we're talking about trade here now, today, we're talking about international trade. We're not talking about uh, trade within a particular country. Yes, this is the uh, revolution that took place with the Industrial Revolution when the output of goods and services increased dramatically. And one of the principal ways that it increased dramatically is because of uh, specialization of labor later specialization of capital as well. This is uh, classic Adam Smith, where the characteristic, essentially, of uh, capitalism is uh, twofold. One is that labor gets to be specialized, and secondly, that 
we have machinery that is owned by private interests, by private individuals, yes? So there are, uh, there's a restriction of the commons. The commons disappear, essentially, and uh, become private property. And secondly, uh, labor gets to be specialized. Just to give you an example of prior to capitalism, what would be the case with labor? Well, in a peasant society, the labor is not very specialized. You can have a peasant family that knows how to do everything. They don't buy anything from other people. They just produce their food, they produce their transportation, they produce their schooling. Children of peasants don't go to school. They learn how to be a good peasant at home. You know, There's also homeschooling. You don't uh, buy food, you produce food. You don't buy transportation, you put together a cart and uh, raise horses for transportation. So the uh, Industrial Revolution brings about this remarkable, remarkable change of specialization of labor and later on specialization of capital. All right. So once you have specialization, what you really need to have is a market, a market system, because now you... Uh, you specialize at what you're good at, and then you exchange it with other, for other things that other people are good at. Yes, you have to create a market. And that's capitalism, uh, a definition of capitalism, really. So, what Adam Smith then does is take the advantages of the industrial system within a country and expands it to international trade, not just internal trade, but international trade. And he says, essentially, countries must specialize in what they're good at producing. By good at producing, we mean efficient at producing. Uh, the good is not, does not have something to do with values. It has to do with efficiency. And as you might have guessed by now, economists are very big on efficiency, not necessarily about the moral good. <laughs> right. Okay. So here's where, So he says, hey, listen, specialize in what you're good at. Uh, other countries will specialize in what they're good at. They will exchange without forcing each other to exchange. It's free trade, yes? And therefore, there's no compulsion and everybody gets to be better off as a result. It's not one group of people uh, being better off at the expense of others. So that's Adam Smith. It's very, very clear and uh, very precise, it seems to me. Now, there is a major criticism, and that is that there are countries that are not very good at producing anything. There are countries that are either not developed or they don't have the natural resources or they haven't produced machinery or they haven't organized themselves in uh, companies and corporations, etc., so that they would be left behind. So that's the major criticism of Adam Smith with respect to international trade. In comes Ricardo. So Adam Smith publishes his uh, famous book, 
the Wealth of Nations in 1776, a very important date, obviously, for Americans. And David Ricardo comes a generation and a half afterwards, namely in 1817. He publishes his very extensive writings. All right. So what he says is a way of solving that problem so everybody can benefit from international trade. And the way that he does it is by postulating these two concepts. One is absolute advantage, and the other one is comparative advantage. Let's take two countries and two products, let's say. So country A can have an absolute advantage in producing good number one, and country A can have an absolute advantage in producing good two. So where is the other country, yes? The other country is nowhere. Ah, says our friend Ricardo, yes, A can have an absolute advantage in one and two products. However, the second country, B, can have a comparative advantage in one of the two. In other words, A can produce more than B in both goods, but in good A, it can produce 10 times as much as country B. In good two, it can produce only five times as much as country B. Therefore, country B has comparative advantage in two, and country A has a comparative advantage in, in one, and therefore it should produce one, product one. It's a specialize in that, and country B should specialize in two. They would exchange, and both countries would benefit. Both countries would benefit. So that's the basis of all theory of international trade in economics since then. I'm going to give a definition that I found about comparative and absolute advantage. Very good. Okay, Tell me sure. if you think that's correct. Comparative advantage is based on premises, one of which is that while capital can move between industries within a nation, it cannot move between nations. That's right. If capital as investment could move abroad, it would have no reason to be content with a mere comparative advantage between nations, but would seek absolute advantage, yes. the absolutely lowest cost of production anywhere. And that's kind of what it seems like what we're okay, doing. Yeah. And what is absolute? what you mean by absolute advantage is that you, you can cross your capital investment, it's not restricted to a locality. Yes. Yeah, and I was going to get to that because it's a condition that uh, Ricardo is very precise. He says, for my theory to be applicable with the results that both countries can benefit, two assumptions must hold. One is that capital remains domestic and labor remains domestic. That is to say, his idea is that if we're going to exchange cars, buy Japanese cars, and America buys uh, some Japanese product, not cars, something else, then it must be that the cars that we buy from Japan must be produced in Japan 
with Japanese capital and with Japanese labor. Uh, that's the condition. He's very, very good about saying my theory is correct only if those assumptions hold. Now he says, of course, these assumptions can be broken and my theory wouldn't hold. He says, let's take two ways in which they can be broken, or two examples. And he has the example of Portugal producing wine and England producing uh, clothing, yes. Let's say that the one way of breaking the assumption is for an English capitalist to take his capital away from England in producing textiles and putting it in Portugal. Then we would break the assumptions. But, says uh, uh, Ricardo, that won't happen. Why won't it happen? It's very interesting. Uh, why won't it happen? Because the English capitalist is going to be concerned that his capital will be taken away by Portuguese government or Portuguese uh, people. They would just grab it. Okay. All right? And that's why an English capitalist doesn't put his capital in Portugal. He's defending his, mm -hmm. his result, in other okay. words. And that, of course, is altogether rubbish. Because if an English capitalist put his capital in Portugal, and anybody in Portugal attempting to get the capital, the British Navy would be in Lisbon the next day. So it does away with that. But that's an extremely important and educational piece, is how economists of that brilliance can be such nincompoops about something outside of economics. For me, it, it's a very, very telling thing. That's why I say time and again that the economics profession generally, it's a general statement it's that with very good exceptions, is that economists by and large are philosophically, psychologically, and religiously idiots. The ignoramuses, let's put it that way. No, they really are. They really are. You rarely can find an economist that is very powerful in those uh, in those realms. The second one is even I, more I, I important. I just want to inter interject y here yes, that yes. my work in theology and yes. for the last few yes, years yes. has been trying to interject the whole economic thinking in, into how that affected theological formations, the opposite kind of thing, where theologians have completely ignored economics, yes. as, as if God didn't have anything to do with economics. Yes. And that's why I refer to certain passages in the Psalms where it says only a fool doesn't believe in God. But that if you read that Psalm, it's really talking about uh, someone who abuses the poor and takes advantage and and becomes rich and and so uh, it's what the term I've used is economic atheist and economic atheist he could believe God all he wants but when it comes to that's right economics and and so it's also the reverse with yes. Econo yes. economists it's like yeah. what we really have is economics for a hundred years has sort of been on its own little pedestal, um, ironically, however, driving 
most everything. That's right. Driving That's... ethics, driving psychology, driving sociology, politics. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it's a real irony. Yes, yes, yes. It's very and very destructive, though. It's not just ironical. It's the, it is really very, very destructive. So listen to the second one, though. It's very interesting. He says, yes. Certainly, uh, English capitalists can put his capital in Portugal in order to make more money. However, being an Englishman, he would never betray the English labor class. Can you believe the naivete? It is just unbelievable. Right. Anyway, so, nevertheless, since then... All, but all of economics makes, uh, makes two major statements about the economy that barely anybody challenges, and both of them are being challenged now, have been for the last 50 years. One is that growth is good and more growth is better, and trade is good and more trade is better. So this is what is being challenged because, by and large, what we have is either one or both of these assumptions of Ricardo uh, have been broken. And the major one that has been broken is the transportability of capital. Yeah. Okay. That corporations being transnational or global can actually take their capital wherever they please. Absolutely. And well, therefore, that's where we go absolute comparative yes, advantage. And in other words, there's no comparative advantage Correct. anymore. There is absolute advantage, and it all is in the hands of large corporations. They're not in the hands of a particular nation, but to the extent that corporations dominate that nation, then to that extent, it's right. corporations that are bigger than nations Yes, and in so, their economic power. And so that absolute advantage is they can go anywhere in the world to get absolutely. the absolutely lowest cost. And for steady-state yes. economy people, the problem with that is they can completely get around the environmental cost of producing those goods. So they can get the cheapest labor near slave labor. That's right. And they can dump all they want into the rivers, the air, the water. Because they have the power to do it. In other words, the capital is so transportable that I can take it out of a country at a moment's notice. Yes? Yes. So I can go to uh, several countries and say, I'm going to bring my capital to your country or your village or your uh, area if you don't tax me or tax me much less or you allow me to pollute as much as I want and you ha we have no unions. So the country agrees because they're desperate. So you go there. And then somehow or other the negative results of all of that appear. And therefore, people start defending themselves, right? right they create right. unions, they see to it that they pass certain laws and for the environment, etc., etc. And what does the company do? Is you do that, we leave tomorrow. Correct. And they've done that 
over right. and over again. But, oh, 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 uh, after the Second World War, I would say it was the great expansion of the big corporations to become right. transnational. And uh, even in the industry I work in, the bicycle industry, which has become yes. totally dependent on China, and then during this pandemic, um, yeah. <laughs> well, now now we're getting our bikes from Vietnam and Cambodia. I mean, it's like, yeah, we can just move our capital and uh, get cheaper labor somewhere else. Cheaper labor and the pollution part, I think, is very, very big. Oh, yeah. Well, that's... And whenever the pollution and labor uh, laws that defend labor are part and part of the agreement, the international agreement, they're rarely, if ever, uh, followed. You can have the conditions in the agreement, but they're not followed. That's Herman Daly's argument against not any international trade, but particular kind of international trade. So that the big move is not to do away with trade, but to speak about what constitutes fair trade. That is to say, everybody benefits from it, not one at the expense of the other. So, uh, and this, by the way, is a criteria of, of economics that at its best, economics does say, hey, listen, you can't do something if the person that does that thing benefits and somebody else pays the cost. The person that benefits must pay the cost, not somebody else. Right. Okay? That's where the move is towards not abolishing trade, but seeing to it that what constitutes good trade. And for me, since I've come to be very, very taken by John Lewis, it's good trouble, oh, or okay. good religion, yes. or good trade. We're not talking about doing away with it. We're not talking about doing away with religion. We're not talking about doing away with families, right? But we are in favor of good families, right. and good government. Well, the so, suggestion of this uh, article I was looking at definitely is saying we've got to get to a system of true comparative advantage. Yes. And I think maybe for our listeners, we need to clarify that once again. But it really seems like there has to be limits on international investments. Yes. That's, and that's where they're calling on a change in how the IMF operates to limit the kind of international yeah. investment. We cannot call on the IMF to do that because they themselves won't do it on their own. What we call for is IMF to be put under restrictions. IMF is n or the World Bank is not going to do that on their own. Okay. Yeah. It's very important to talk about that. The economics profession, even its, you know, big names like Samuelson, let's say, they say uh, he has a statement out way back, we're talking 50 years ago, where he says economists disagree about most anything except for international trade where they all agree that international trade is good and more international trade is better. And a number of economists after that have said the same thing. Okay. So it's really essentially we're coming either close or actually 
at the point where we're talking about economic dogma. All right. I really mean it in, in the bad sense of dogma, of course. Okay, okay so we're swimming up upstream here in oh, our yes, discussion. Yes, this is not uh, something that is going to be easy to... Because you have to undermine below what economists usually talk about, namely philosophy and things like that. And here's the rub with that. When we say that trade is good, according to, let's say, Ricardo, even if the assumptions hold, what we're looking at is that it's efficient. People can get more stuff for less. That implies that what economics is about is about money-making and efficiency. And this is where, in my estimation, Aristotle is really superb in distinguishing economia from chrimatistiki. Chrimatistiki is the art of making money. And for him, out of the question as a good, it is intermediate good in the sense that it's the means towards a goal. It's not a goal in itself. The goal in itself is eudaimonia, right? Happiness. Economics is not about making money. Economics is about how to provide the household with what it needs materially so they can attend to its own uh, psychological and spiritual growth. I have maybe a contemporary comparison to yes. that, and, and that it really comes from Michael Hudson, yes. who's very clear that there's two economies, one that he calls the fire economy, which is finance, investment, and real estate, and then what he calls the real economy. I, I've had this discussion with my friends that I don't think a lot of people really understand how economics is working today because we are all we assume and this this plays out politically you know with people voting conservative because they well there's a lot of people that will vote conservative because they think that's the more economically sound way to go mm -hmm. and and somehow the liberal version doesn't understand economics but they're working on this very economia type of economy was like, well, you know, I work, I get money, I go buy goods, you uh, you provide the goods, you work so you can provide the goods, and, and there's this, this kind of lubrication going on, and, that, and that, that's fantastic, but what I think a lot of people don't understand is there's this fire economy, what, what is called the financialization of capitalism, which is just over powering this whole system and controlling it and limiting its its activity and this is the inversion of the more appropriate relationship of finance to the economy finance is supposed to be the servant of the economy it finances the economy. You want to do certain various things, so you provide the means, the means by which you do what you want to do. Now, finance has the economy serve it. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it's the obverse. We're not talking about a, a few degrees off here. We're talking about an inversion of the appropriate 
relationship between one and the other. I've come more and more to attempt to speak about these things in terms of this inversion, the ends and the means. And it captures uh, the mind. For many, many people, myself included, it takes a long time to get out of that trap. Yes. I read an article in the paper just today about how the big banks and the Fed are discussing interest rates and things of that nature. And the big banks are saying, well, you got to make sure, you know, that we have loans available because we're the ones that are going to fuel the economy here. And, oh, boy. Yeah, the big banks in particular, not the community banks and the smaller banks, you know, that have done uh, good work in terms of providing monies for people to buy their houses and to do the small businesses, etc. But the big banks have supported two or three major, major industries. One is the fossil fuel industry, the other one is the war industry, and the third one is the uh, the uh, drug estate. industry. And real estate. And real estate, that's right, and real estate. Many, if not all of those, are destructive in and of themselves, but if they're not destructive in and of themselves, they're destructive in their unequal. That is to say, nothing wrong with providing money for real estate, but not right. with redlining. Yeah. And I say, you're going to provide money for real estate. You need to do it for the use that you make uh, of the land for yourself. Correct. Rather than as speculation. Yep. Buying the land in order to sell it for a higher price. Yes. Yeah. I think that that encapsulates where we are at in terms of why we need to change things. I'm very big on not asking for change. I feel responsible to say why we need to change because the way we have it is destructive of people's lives and for the environment. Right. That's why we need to change. In other words, we're producing harm the way we, we, we structure our economy. The other one is... Yes, we need to change, but the very big question then becomes, to what? I uh, disagreed uh, with Obama on many grounds, but one particular one is that it's not sufficient to say change. What kind of changes and what results do you expect from those changes? And afterwards, to be able to say, how do you measure whether you've produced the results that you wanted to. So it's not sufficient to say we're going to have a wealth tax. I want to know what kind of wealth tax and uh, what do you expect that will happen as a result of putting that kind of wealth tax? What will happen that's good? There is where I disagree with most uh, liberals. We've got to be considerably more responsible about suggesting what is it that we want instead and why on what philosophical grounds because it serves the common good rather than profit but that still is a huge dividing line and i in my view that's more and more the case that we've got people in the world that are after a limited self-interest and maybe some limited public good and those who believe that 
the common good is really the the higher value. That's right. I right. don't think America is very high on the list of seeing the common good. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things that I appeal to is looking at the Declaration of Independence and also the Constitution, and it's replete with more perfect union and we the people and us and things like that. There's barely anything that has to do with individual except individual rights. Right. And that's a revolution in and of itself, actually, for the 18th century. And individual pursuit of happiness. And individual pursuit of happiness, that's right. And one of the revolutions that I would like to see is when we start talking about we the people, how does we the people have rights that are associated with we the people rather than individuals. In other words, we've substituted, instead of the sovereign being the king, right. we've substituted we the people, right? Mm -hmm. So that we the people decide what we're going to do with our resources and our companies, etc., etc. It's not government, it's not individuals, it's not corporations, it's we the people that are sovereign, for goodness sake. Right. And that sovereignty needs to have rights attached to it so that we are happier, right. not you and I only. Right. Obviously not at the expense of you and I, right. but it's well, you important. do have you do have radical libertarians that talk about the sovereign individual, and they're usually talking about yes, well, wealthy people that that's you right. Know, they've earned their place to do uh, what they want. Yes, 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 but, and impose I mean, their will on others. Really, if I put you in uh, Botswana, you would be able to do the same thing as you did with being a citizen of the United States. You're dreaming. Right. Let's find out if you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's find out if at the age of three or four, you're left uh, to your own devices in some uh, ghetto. Are you really saying that? But, you know, we can confront people and, and, and show them that what they claim is absurd. No, really. Mm -hmm. I mean it. That this is the way that we need to go about it. I find with my work with uh, public banking that I've come to a temporary conclusion that it's useful to talk to legislators, but not sufficient. Because in my experience now in the last two years or so, is that politicians, even liberal politicians, don't see themselves as kings and queens. They already have learned the mantra of saying we're you know, nobody is above the law. But they do see themselves as prince and princesses. <laughs> yeah. They do. Uh -huh. Instead of, and I want to say to them very clearly, look, if you claim to be an American and an American politician, you are my servant. Do you understand that? Do you really, really understand that? And you need to be doing what we tell you to do. <laughs> That doesn't mean that you are a servant per se, but in that role you're a servant. Just like I'm a servant to you when you come to my restaurant. You tell me what you want, 
I uh, offer that to you, you pay me, etc. And if I don't provide the service that you've wanted, then you shouldn't pay me. We're all both entrepreneurs and servants at the same time, but in different roles. Yes. And that's part of the real economy that most people think operates on global scales. You know, it's like, well, I work hard, I produce a product, I provide it to you, you pay for it. And yeah. and that that's what we think the economy is operating off of. And some of, you know, per, certain persuasions want to think that People are cheating the system and get, not working for... Uh, and, and I'm sure uh, some people are cheating the system, including very rich people. <laughs> Mo- mostly mostly yeah, rich yeah, people. Yeah. That's, so, that's uh, how you become rich, by the way, yeah, is by right. cheating the system. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, you know... Either by cheating the system or by taking advantage of the system's uh, structure. That they're not doing something that is illegal, in other words. Yeah? Right. Yeah. Bezos increased his wealth by $70 billion by being asleep. But he didn't do it illegitimately in the sense of illegal, but illegitimately in the sense that he didn't offer any uh, effort Correct. to produce that. Yes. Yeah. And, and then... Of course, there's Bezos and many others were just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. Well, the right place being in the United States with its particular laws, with its particular roads, with yeah. its particular educational with, institutions, with, with its particular... With giant university systems, systems. producing uh, for the military, <laughs> mainly for the military, this yeah. massive being amounts of research. To, to uh, not allow unions to be formed. You take advantage of that, right? In Correct. other countries, you can't do that. Correct. Yeah. Well, Until, I think... of course, then you have a rising middle class and your company is producing more goods than you have customers for, so then you need to find or you need to export your product. Yes. The thing is, though, that this is something that I think we've talked about some... That is to say, Adam Smith is very good about that. He says, you know, it's going to last approximately 200 years, this capitalism. Or they didn't call it capitalism at the time. But the particular version of the industrial system. After that, people will, um, as rational individuals, listen to this, this is very interesting, they'll come to the conclusion that they don't need more. They have enough. Why should I work untold hours under these kinds of uh, conditions in order to get an extra Coke, do I know? Right. Or an extra uh, million dollars. I'm, I'm happy the way I am. And I do think that is happening, although we've lived through the last 20 years where I remember when George Bush yeah. decided to give yes. everyone money to lube, lube their economy. That's right. And... So all of a sudden, this is what this article mentions about all of a sudden we're under some kind of moral obligation yes. to, to consume. Spend, to consume. Yes. You know, that that's taken that whole thing that you just mentioned to a, a different kind of level that maybe he didn't anticipate. But we're, we're still going to have that. This, this was in the paper today, this controversy over meat because the governor decided to have a non-meat day and everyone saying oh this is gonna crash our economy so here's what we're gonna we're calling for everybody to eat eat a oh. pile of meat to sort of counteract that and 
here's exactly what we're talking about is this call to overconsume <laughs> for the sake of saving a, a system which should not be saved. Yes. Yes. You can say, hey, listen, we don't need any more, any more fossil fuels. That will obviously uh, reduce the number of people who are working there. But you can also train them to put up solar panels, for goodness sake, and windmills. Sometimes, not, not always. I mean, that doesn't well, always over time, but that's part and parcel. That's part and parcel of the market system. When your market goes under, you're not supposed to uh, sort of give up. You say, oh, there's another opportunity here or another opportunity here. Or, right? This is the entrepreneurial spirit. Right, so right. what happens? with the entrepreneurial spirit, if what you're doing is destructive. We're not claiming that you didn't do some good in the past. You know, we all drove cars and we all like our cars and all of that. And now is the time to change. That's all. Alec, Very I got I to gotta tell you, not don't pound on the table because oh, okay. it okay. will pick okay. up yeah, on yeah, the yeah. yeah, okay. Well, I'm Greek. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, yes. I think this notion of consumerism, again, it turns into an ism. It's not against consumption. The ism has an element of compulsion in it, of addiction. Right. So we all agree that addiction is a bad thing for just about anything. Right. You know, and therefore, don't just support addiction. <laughs> Put the resources the physical resources, the labor resources, the, uh, the land resources, the intellectual resources, the religious resources, the philosophical resources towards happiness right, and the common good. That's oh, it. Okay, so we need to wrap up our time yes, here, but yes. let's... Uh, is there any more that you need to say? Because the focus was this on what is the problem with yes. global trade. Is, yes. you got more to say? No, I think that that's it. That essentially the solutions that have been suggested by economists no longer work okay. because they don't produce the results that we want produced as was claimed before. That doesn't mean that all past trade was bad or that trade in, in and of itself is bad, but we need to reconsider what kind of trades we consider legitimate and what kind of trades we consider illegitimate. So, for example, previously it was okay to trade in slaves, and we decided, no, that, that is not an appropriate thing for a society to, to buy and sell uh, human beings. I want to say one more thing that came to my Which, attention. Which, by the way, the the uh, trade agreement that Obama negotiated, which was dealing with modern day, yes. you know, human trafficking. That's right. And That's so we right. still have that problem. That's right. That's right. No, no. I'm just saying there are yes. certain things that we have decided as a society that we can't really trade, and we can't put in the market. There are goods and services that are not to be put in the market. Well, it seems like uh, steady-state economics is calling for ways in which you can encourage local production yes. and local distribution. Plenty of places in That's China right. for you to get meat, 
Yes. Why are we sending meat well, that's all right. across that's the right. ocean? And, in my, and meat production in particular is very polluting. Yes. Very polluting. Oh, yes. And using a lot of water uh, at that in comparison to certain plants and certain other things. The other thing I can say in conclusion that I've uh, come across something that reminded me of a book that I read many, many years ago. I heard it on the radio. This fellow who had a tree in his yard, and he legally gave that tree the rights to self-determination. But it held that nobody could cut it down and, you know, all of that sort of thing. In other words, that trees have rights, listen to this, <laughs> more so than corporations, because corporations are an inanimate object. Here, trees is a live object, so if anybody would have rights over corporations, it would be trees, plants, animals, you know, that sort of thing. And then, listen to this, the tree died, and some neighbors took the seeds and planted them, and the, the young tree is flourishing, and it has the same rights. <laughs> Where, now, where is this? I, don't, I heard it on the radio. I have to find it for you, too. And it reminded me of a book that I'd read 30 years ago. And it's called, and I looked it up and it's still uh, published, uh, Do Trees Have Standing? And I'm beginning to be thinking in terms of rights to human beings and to the environment now. Well, I mean, there's organizations that are pushing for animal rights. That's right. With, and it started with an Australian philosopher who wrote a book, I think, called Animal Rights and started this again 30 or some years ago. Very, very interesting. And, you know, on the basis upon which animals have rights is that they feel pain. That's where he grounded his philosophical uh, mm. Uh, idea. So these are the changes that require imagination, require discussion, require how to take these ideas and put them into practice. And, and also, if we're mistaken, to very early realize that we're mistaken and, and fix things. So how would you change or modify the phrase trade is good and more trade is even better? Some trade is good, some trade is mediocre, and some trade is bad, depending on whether it serves the common good. That's it. The and criterion is the common good. Does it serve the common good? Yes, and not just in this country, but no, no. You know, we have no. to think. And, and by the way, this is something, the four freedoms of uh, Roosevelt. Remember we talked about mm -hmm. those? Right. I mean, really made me weep when I first saw it, was that he favored those four freedoms for the world, and that freedom from violence, for example, that the United States stands ready not to attack anybody and not to allow others to attack anybody. It's not only about the United States. It's about what the United States stands for in the world. This is extraordinary. It's an ethic for the world. Right. We're not special. Well, let's wrap it up for now. Yeah. Now, Alec has reminded me that trade is not his forte, and it's certainly not mine. So we're exploring things on very basic levels. 
but it is part of the whole strategies of a steady state economics. And we go back to the original problem is like you can have localities where there's attempts at a steady state, but yes. if if your neighbor next door is mass producing plastic, you but know, and importing have... it everywhere and with no idea about how to recycle it, it minimizes or uh, negates, you know, your... Yes, if we're, if we're not careful. But, you know, one of the ideas I've had is, uh, I don't know anybody who's used it, but probably has, and that's the tailpipe principle. You produce pollution, boy, you swallow it. That's it. Because then you'll know that you're committing suicide, not killing other people. If you want to commit suicide, go ahead and do it, baby. You know, but don't export it to somebody else. Yes. And I so, see you have Christian Felber. Felber's uh, book where he talks exactly about that, where you want to be a polluting corporation, you know, have at it, but you, you will cost pay you. the costs. You'll, you'll you pay will the cost, pay the costs, absolutely. Which is a very... Uh, everybody accepts that concept, right? Yeah. If I go into a shop and, and get something and not pay its cost, I'm a thief. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, if you ha and, and the cost is its damage essentially to the common good. That's right. Know, yeah, that ultimate, Both individual and common good yeah, there, yes. in that case. And, yeah. and if you are a corporation that enhances the common good via non-pollution, providing something you, necessary You get subsidies, society. you get reduction in yes. taxes, you yes. get all of those kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The market system is one of the greatest inventions of the human mind. I really believe that. Where it's appropriate to be used. And it can be used to guide the economy where we want it to, rather than, again, that inversion of talking about the market says... Where yeah. do people come up with this well, kind they of talk, nonsense? Uh, they talk about it as if it's a god. Yes. And I mentioned that in my book, the French writer who really said, this is more than analogy. They, we really talk about the market yes. as if it is a god. That's right. That must be obeyed. Yeah. And That's he, right. Well, the, this French art, uh, author calls him craven and dumb. <laughs> Yeah, and sluggish, yeah. and yet we keep talking as if it has to be fed, yes, or we will we will die. That's right. It's dragon-like, only inanimate. Right, and this is the call of a lot of ecologists and others who want carbon taxing. Yes, I mean it. Let's apply market forces to true cost. That's right. And this is what the problem of where capitalism has been led. Now, I'm not necessarily anti-capitalism, uh, but it's been led down a rather foul hole at this point. And it's the constant problem of the hidden cost will hide the cost from you. And it appears like you're getting a great deal on this new TV or new computer. And we're, we've just simply buried the costs. Well, ex exported them. Yes. Yeah, somewhere yes. else. Yeah. This is the call. Is we cannot keep doing it. Sure, let's have capitalism, but let's have capitalism in which we are not bearing, hiding, uh, secluding costs, and that's usually so somebody, a small percentage, can exceedingly profit. Yes, by bearing the costs in all kinds of ways. That's right, and I would say 
with respect to capitalism and socialism that I think we've transcended both of them. Because capitalism is based on profit. It has certain very great virtues, and the principal example of that, it created the middle class. No other economic system in the history of mankind has created the middle class. That's fantastic. It just won't do anymore. According to some sociologists and anthropologists I've read, the middle class is what always produces revolution. (laughs) It's the middle class who, once they've reached a certain level, and then they see that diminishing and being overtaken. Yeah, not necessarily the working class, in other words. Uh, Not not the poor. That's right. Not the poor and not the working (laughs) class. Uh, They can be, yeah, because they're involved in just survival. Yes, it's like what Bernie Sanders said in the 2016 election uh, when he lost uh, New York, and he said, well, poor people don't vote. Yeah. <laughs> they can't vote. You they know? can't. They have to work yeah, one, they have two, to work. three work, yeah. uh, jobs. <laughs> they don't have time to even pay attention to politics. That's right. Well, that's where the revolution is going to come. Yeah, but I think more from elders in conjunction with young people, because they're the ones that have some time available to them. Yes, the younger generation, the ones that I know, I may, I have a certain circle of young people that I'm acquainted with. Yeah, they all see the failure of the system. And they're going to inherit. We're not, I'm not going to inherit yes, any of that garbage. and they feel that profoundly. Yeah. But unfortunately, a lot of them at this point, I think, are disillusioned to the point where they've they just said, screw it. Well, you know, the last session in one of my class that was team taught at Ollie, one woman and me had the the topic of despair. I sat down and did a session on myself, as it were, you know, and found seven words like fear, anxiety, despair, etc. And it's it's synonyms and antonyms. And then warned myself and others not to allow ourselves to fall into that hole. Because that's the principal technique of any person that wants to take hold of you. All right. We're going to wrap it up for now. And, yeah, and next time we'll do uh, suggested solutions. Yes, for okay. trade. Uh, yes. Gonna, so we'll be talking for about... For international trade, though. Yeah. I, I mentioned international because trade can be internal. So yes. use the term international trade. Yes. So we're going to talk about what's good trade, what's yeah. not serve, so good trade, and what's bad trade. That's right. <laughs> to serve people, not money. Yes. The, okay. We'll see you okay. next time. Okay.